Born to a king and queen of an empire now forgotten, I was the forest-born heir to the throne of Merindril, a princess of a failing empire of tree and leaf, ravaged by the rise of industry, fouled by the greed of both man and elf alike. For my part, I was tasked with the ushering return of purity to my realm, a semblance of tree-line green, mist and mire sheltering a bustling society within. From our capital city, we shared the knowledge of those long past through the joy of written law. Joined to the city's hanging gardens, soaked in the shadowy pine-green shade, lay the library of our forebearers, the Eloquith. In my kingdom, we celebrated learning only as a pastime, and reading required no outside encouragement. We saw it not as a necessary means to our greater end and a chore for the unwilling, but as an exciting factor of our everyday lives. We never questioned our love of finding our own little corner, curling up with a good book, be it fact or fiction, and nestling cosily into another world entirely. I, for one, am forever a willing slave to the arcane knowledge of myth and magic, folly and fable, all of which a feast for my starving mind, forever curious and bursting with imagination. Whether it be tales of Merlin the Undying, or his mortal enemy Eldritch the Moonkin, with his sword, the Storm of Lightsbane, a sword that was bestowed with the power to cover all whom it slain in utter darkness and bring entire nations to their knees. A curse that will befall his enemies by reflecting the light of the moon off its pitch-black steel. Be it the accounts of the seafaring free elves of middle history, the first but not the last to seek the bounty beyond the ice sheets of the northern wastelands. The struggle of the elder priest, the first summoner, to summon the Ark of Uden, the chariot of the gods, to carry his kin from the northern shores to these lands, being the first to populate the south as we know it. All of this and more became the colour of my vivid imagination and steered me on my way to become the magic wielder, adventurer and sorceress I am today. My curiosity for learning and my fondness for intrigue continued well into my days as an apprentice sorceress, where, amongst other things, I discovered the texts of the Velarine, the founder's account of the previously mentioned bounty beyond the wastelands in the southwest of the northern continents. Here it was said that a weapon that bore no homeland, made not by man nor elf, and could destroy all but be destroyed by none, resided deep within the towering glaciers in a vestige of whence it came. I came to understand from years of research and cross-referencing that this ancient weapon was none other than the Apocalypse Orb, known as the Vector of Plagues, that which would become, and to this day remains, the bane of my now home, Jaram, the singular entity that threatens to burn this world to cinders and has already taken from me the man I once loved consuming the kindness and heroism of a man who swore to protect these lands, only to twist and turn him into the very man who may now destroy them. It became increasingly apparent that the Vector was not the sole device needed to realise the intended purpose of its mechanisms. 
I discovered through many hours of scouring through the Great Library of Jarum that there existed a second orb called the Silhouette of Sophia. Obscure in reference and less inclined to actual fact than its brother, the Vector of Plagues, this orb was made with the purpose to effectively undo the destructive power of the other. The intention being that once the world was ravaged by disaster and plague, and leaving only the user and the orb itself remaining, the silhouette allowed its user to reimagine the world in his or her own image. In doing so, the silhouette would then awaken fully, and with the use of a magic way beyond any I have ever come across, or even heard of for that matter, would see that very vision come to life, recreating the world entirely by whatever design the user sees fit. The given location of this orb, unlike the vector, was vague to say the least. I gathered from many different fragments of texts that the vector itself, or its resting place alone, would lead the way to finding the silhouette, and thus complete the set, as it were. The things that I learned here, in the younger days of my life, would sink into that subconscious backroom shelf of my mind for many years, until what I assumed to be merely fiction actually came to pass. The Vector has become a very real threat to the great people of this world, and my wisdom to bury deep the secrets of the Silhouette might have been the only saving grace they have right now. Having now seen the legendary Vector with my own eyes, I wonder just how many more of those grand tales of old are actually true. How many so-called forgotten lands, buried by time and dust, were more than just imaginations of a creative mind? How many more secrets lay buried beneath the ruins of ages past? But of all the stories, fact or no, that I have read throughout my many days upon this earth, none have aroused my sense of wonder and curiosity more than the tale of the Forest of Stars. The story of how it came to be, of how my story has become so closely connected to that place. Everything about it has gripped me to almost complete obsession. It seems like fiction has a way of coming to life after all. The Forest of Stars. A sprawling woodland, bathed in eternal twilight, that has captivated the curious for a time immemorial. Splendorous in the blur of an oil-painted canvas, coloured the blue of a moonlit lagoon, a gemstone sparkle twinkling under a galaxy of starlight. The flora seen abundant within, a more crystal than plant life, and softly hum a bottle blow a single note upon the drowsing wind, accompanied by the mysterious serenade of a choir that cannot be seen. It is a chorus with no origin, perpetuating in the vastness of this otherworldly domain, and can be heard beyond the veil of all living things, no matter where one is placed within the sparse domain of oaken walls. However, it is the fey folk that are responsible for the name of this particular forest, and for giving the forest its most stunning attribute. The fey folk are halcyon orbs of spectral energy, buoyant in the stillness of the air, their waning luminescence giving them a lifelike presence. Oft has been the debate between the mages as to whether or not these entities are a living legion of their own, 
or simply a residue of life that exists as a result of the actions of other living beings. I am happy to say that I know the answer to this riddle. For me to reveal the answer, I must first consult the ancient tale of how the Forest of Stars transformed from just a haunted and desolate crypt of rotted trees to the magical utopia that it is to this day. In the legend of the Saraband, the ancient text that follows the follies of Merlin and his battles against the evil Moonkin, it is written that when Eldritch's final darkness was ultimately falling upon the last cities and defences of the undying Merlin, rather than risk the lives of his people by standing his ground against his greatest foe, a move that would have jeopardised his entire kingdom, he bargained with Eldritch that he would retreat to a place of seclusion with his circle, a place within the sight of the Moonkin himself, where he and his generals would sacrifice themselves in return for the safety of their people. Indeed, this pleased the Moonkin to no end, if just to hear the once proud Merlin surrender his immortality to sway him. And he understandably agreed to all terms without hesitation. It was blindingly obvious to all concerned that Eldritch would grow wary of peace after a time, and unbeknownst to the great evil one, Merlin and his circle had long formulated a plan in secret that would ensure that even in their death, their people would eventually reign victorious over their dreaded enemy. The circle's deaths, if you could even name them so, would not be in vain. They would ensure that when the time came, the people would be ready not only to fight, but to win. The day came when the seven mystical warriors rode north to what would become their tomb, a decrepit and skeletal forest, feared and avoided by the world, and the perfect location for secrecy and sacrifice. It was in the deep centre of the vast woodland that Merlin and the other six masters began a ceremony that had never been seen before and has not been replicated since. With all of their strength, drawn from their flesh and their life forces combined, they gifted the forest all of their collective knowledge, wisdom and power. Separating the essence of their beings from body to a new host, they gifted this wretched and withered old place their undying will and strength, their skills and mastery so that they would become the forest itself, held together by the bones of the dead oaks and birch, to exist forever as a sea of unfathomable might with which to paint the trees and woodland anew. Their bodies simply cease to be through an amalgamation of explosive colour and phosphorus light that evaporated into the starry eve of that fateful night. The Moonkin was none the wiser to this conspiracy against him, and arrogantly assumed complete victory over his foe. The time would come, he thought, when his entire dominion would engulf the fallen Merlin's realms. But for now, he would rest and revel in his achievements. But his mistake was his complacency. And had he marched upon those realms to enslave them immediately, then Merlin's plans would have been for naught. Complacency 
was the weakness of the Moon King that Merlin could count on entirely, to the point where it would be the crutch that his entire plan rested on. With the ceremony in the forest complete, the people of Merlin's empire who were left to fight on would now march north by foot to feed upon the knowledge left to them through supreme sacrifice. Through deep meditation, surrounded by the life force of their departed masters, they would begin their arduous training in an art that until now had only been practiced by Merlin and his circle. Never would these people have imagined that one day they would be part of an entire race of mages, an army of such significant number capable of defeating their most fearsome nemesis with significant ease. And that was exactly what they did. The Moonkin, in his inexhaustible arrogance, failed to see anything more than simple pilgrimages in the firstborn mages' journeys to the forest. He thought too much of their sentimentality and wrongly figured the rebirth of the forest for the erecting of a shrine in honour of the fallen Merlin. Oh, how he laughed, ignorant to the fact that his foes were growing stronger by the day, quick enough to surpass him in a matter of years. The forest, now a living library to the knowledge of the fallen who gave their lives so it would live again. There it came to pass that in the once skeletal ruin of ancient trees, now the forest of stars, these brave few became the slayers of Eldritch and became the ancestors of us who were born with the gift of magic. My ancestors, the first of the Magi. You see, the Fey folk are what I believe to be the physical embodiment of all that remains of Merlin and his circle. They are the very vessels for their souls, etched forever into the fabric of this enchanted wilderness. The choirs are the voices of the circle, an echo of their final song together, perhaps a prayer, or perhaps something even more resilient than that, something truly beautiful that these seven majors held as close to their hearts as they did each other in the final moments of their lives. Whatever it all may represent, though, the Forest of Stars still stands to this day and has remained a place of training, testing, and meditation for the mages of today, as it was for the army of mages that first stepped foot there all those centuries ago. These first mages were my ancestors and we are now born bestowed with the gifts that they received, instinctive to us now, unlike it was to them. And we have swelled in numbers, and have developed a greater set of skills to that of our predecessors, so much more so that we now have disciplines of magic unheard of before, practised by the various divisions of our armies, summoners of great beasts, Mystical demons and spiritual entities are valued highly in our way of life, and is a commitment of strength similar to that of Merlin and his circle's summoning of the forest. As a sorceress, I have taken upon myself the biggest burden of them all, to master both the summoner's way and that of an elemental mage, a task that requires enough discipline, patience, and will to succeed as two entire lifetimes of training in the basic arts would afford. I am, as many would say, 
in fine-tuning with the world around me, and have embraced the magics as the very breath that I breathe. It is an obsession, but one that makes me more powerful than I could have ever dreamed of being. But it was not always this way. Several years ago now, as I approached the elven adulthood, my time for grace had come. To reach grace is the becoming of a fully-fledged sorceress, a test of discipline that surpasses the feeble bureaucracy of written tests and practical examination that lowly majors face on surpassing apprenticeship. It was the same for all who wished to control the arcane magics at their most advanced levels, a test made for only the most hardened of would-be sorcerers. My task was far from a simple one. In fact, there was a very realistic possibility that I would not survive at all. As I have no doubt stressed enough already, only the absolute best could hope to reach the rank and prestige of sorceress. And certain death would await those who fell too short of that particular benchmark. I would ride north with an appointed Eldar, or if you prefer, a member of the Archmage's inner circle. We would ride to the Forest of Stars, where he or she would summon for me a beast of such gargantuan power that it would intentionally be way beyond my reach and skill to defeat. My task was to overcome it nevertheless, to use everything that made me a cut above the rest, to deliver a force beyond the sum of everything that I had ever known and come to learn on my journey to mastery. It was a Sunday, a murky and wretched winter's morning that clinged to the ground like a corpse. I sat wrapped up tightly from the cold on my horse. A hearty broth of fog surrounded me below my waist, allowing a horizon of mouldy turquoise shades to fill the voids above it. Through the gloop of this unpleasant atmosphere, I could just about make out the shapes of street urchins, combing through the filth in shit in heavy numbers, out in the fields beyond the city limits. What were they searching for out there? Well, anything that wasn't filth or shit, I suppose. What misery. I sat watching these unfortunate souls for quite some time, thinking to myself what lengths I would promise myself to go to to deliver these people of Jarum from their debauched survivalist dependencies. Awoken from my daydream, I was startled to attention by the galloping of hooves in the distance. My appointed Eldar was approaching. The silhouettes of street folk scattered in panic as the mist began to part in the rider's wake, and my curiosity began to soar as to who the Archmage had sent for me. The curtain of fog before me opened, and my horse startled backwards, almost tipping me over its back. When we both regained our balance, I sat there speechless at the rider who had emerged. He spoke my name as both a question and an answer but at the same time it was neither of those things. It was an emotionless statement that died as soon as it left his lips, exhaling the surrounding fog with the words like the fog had emanated from him this whole time. He said no more. His left hand beckoned me to follow him back through the mist as he turned back into the breath of winter. They have sent their very best, I thought, as the Archmage himself departed into the bitter morning shroud. Do you like Dungeons & Dragons? Well, 
Did you know there are countless other tabletop games that are just as, if not even more fun? Games like Shadowrun, Blades in the Dark, Numenera, Seventh Sea. The only problem is going through and reading that many books can be time consuming and expensive, especially if you don't like the book you bought. That's where I come in. If you're tired of the same old sword and sorcery, or just want to learn some unique and fun games, come listen to Metamagic the RPG Podcast, where I not only break down different tabletop RPGs, but give you the tips and tools needed to run a better game or be a better player. That's Metamagic the RPG Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you can find podcasts. Subscribe today. During the early days of the war against the North, a conflict that Archmage Barber had inherited from his predecessor, the road north to the Forest of Stars had become very treacherous indeed. Bandit gangs, who had formed from the rabble of disillusioned soldiers, roamed the wildlands and preyed on the trade caravans and wandering travellers who were journeying between Jarum and the border villages of Mistletoe and Spire. Due to the decreasing traffic that resulted from this dangerous set of circumstances, the road north from Jarum had become seriously neglected by authorities, meaning that wild animals and monsters also lurked from sight, in waiting for easy prey to feed upon. The road itself had become unkempt also. Overgrowth and disrepair now plagued the cobbled paths and horse trails. This became our first major challenge on the road to my trials. Our horses would need to ride slow, inevitably leaving us open to attack from predators human or otherwise. Although we did not find ourselves in many particularly hindering positions on the road to our destination, I did find good opportunities to prove my worth to Archmage Baba. On several occasions, wild beasts attempted to sway us from our path, and a chance for me to flex my muscles hoved into view during one particular episode. As we came to the fork in the road that separated the paths to the forest and that which led to Mistletoe and Spire, we were set upon by a burden of fangs, an entire clan of beastly wolves, vampiric in nature and numbering a hefty twenty individuals at least. Knowing full well that we were surrounded, I dismounted my horse and withdrew my sword, as the archmage looked on in puzzlement. The best idea, he said, was to break through the pack and outrun them. I was not in the fleeing mood. Wanting to show my power to my elder, especially since my elder was the leader of my entire nation, I drew the beasts to me, holding their circle intact with my ability to charm wild animals and persuade them to a certain extent, an ability the Archmage later claimed that as a sorceress I had no business mastering. When they were close enough for me to smell the rotten meat in their breath and hear the wet panting of their rabid hunger up close, I cut them down to the very last in one fell swoop. The archmage remained perched upon his black stallion, and I could have sworn I spied a look of disbelief in his eyes as I mounted my horse once more, taking the right-hand path onward to the forest. At the entrance to the forest, or one of the many at least, was where I truly made a rod for my own bag. Very few scholars will tell you now of the Perditus Magi, the shell-shocked few of the lost order who became spiritually and physically corrupted by years of practicing the forbidden magics. They are seldom mentioned in this age simply because there were thought to be none left alive roaming the region of Jarum, but Arlark was out on vacation the day of my grace. 
The words came before the being itself. Grumbled a confused, disembodied voice. Like two soaked pieces of wood rubbing together, his voice was the epitome of old. The winter sun hid behind a family of ashen clouds, and a light shower of rain that had followed us to the entrance became a vertical downpour. Sodden and miserable we became, waiting for the voice to return. The archmage opposite me, his back to the wall of trees that made up the forest, shot me a look of fearsome disgust. It was behind me, his eyes told me. Now how do I go about describing how on earth someone could ever look like... They don't exist. Is it possible for someone to look like that? On the surface, the old man looked like... Well, an old man. The archetypal wizened wizard. The snow-white beard. The length of the years proceeding it. The cobwebs of hair just about clinging on for dear life. Yes, a typical elder mage. But it was not the surface of the man who made the man, as it were. As often as he breathed, parts of the wizard's being seemed to disappear, and not from view of the naked eye either. It was as though the man before us was an apparition, and parts of that projection were failing to register in the world around us. He flickered and distorted like a damaged machine. His sparks were like small electrical faults, but magical somehow. Like parts of the magic that made up his biology were bleeding out before us. He was an image that was not altogether there, and it was terrifying. I expected forbidden magic for him, and if used correctly, it was a fearsome foe. For almost none of us, the mages of today, had even as much as encountered it, let alone practised it. But I also expected an inadequate proportion of it also, otherwise he wouldn't be in this mess. If he were a master of the forbidden, then he wouldn't have been the broken figure I saw before me. In fact, he'd probably just be dead from old age. It was said that in all of history, the only true conqueror of forbidden magic was Eldritch the Moonkin. So... Go figure. I had another concern, more than that of just killing this creature for self-defence. He would no doubt attack us out of confusion eventually. But as childish as it sounds, they can be quite mischievous, these perditous mages. They apparently have the ability to give and take knowledge from the forest itself, teaching the mages that follow corrupted magics and unsavoury habits. Their only weakness regarding this trait is that they cannot enter the forest themselves, but were known in older times to wander around the entrances, cloaked and pesky, waiting to greet a passer-by and persuade them to grant them entrance. If said passage was not allowed to them, then they would turn violent, confused by what they might call rudeness. He tried to touch me, and his hands were the coldness of death. He was already so confused and quite pathetic, really. I felt sorry for him. Even if it were his lust for power, his desire for majesty or wealth that the dark magics would afford to him that were to blame for his prolonged and tortured existence, 
Surely that was too severe a punishment for lust. Either way, pitiful or no, his attempt to reach out to me was no doubt merely an attempt to lower my guard, either my physical defences or my emotional perceptions of him. I wasn't letting him into the forest, and that was that. The archmage stood silently, visibly cautious but ready to strike if it came to that. It did not. I let the creature, as deadly as he was, reach out and touch my face again, lowered my head in what would appear to him as sympathy, and when he took a step back, I withdrew my sword. In a single, lightning-fast movement, I decapitated the poor bastard. His head made a single thud in the soaked earth, and splashed small trickles of mud over my battle garments. There was no blood. I alone delivered blissful slumber to this tortured soul, as once again dear Baba watched in awe, apparent awe this time, at the wretched sight before him. The Major's body fell as one would expect, but it turned to dust the moment it met the ground below. There was no trace left of the terrifyingly strong creature that I had dispatched with ease. I stood victorious, cocky even, at the feat I'd just performed. I turned to the Archmage and gave him a twisted smile. Excited greatly by my understated achievement, I laughed breathlessly. He was not impressed. In fact, he tied up his horse and went on ahead into the darkness of the Forest of Stars without me. I laughed to myself quietly. Not much of a rookie now, eh, Archmage? I caught up with him in a row of purple flowers that smelled utterly divine. Like lavender, I think. Not much of an expert, I'm afraid. He was peering through a gap in the growing fauna, slightly off the plain soil path leading to a quiet-looking entranceway. He was eyeing an apprentice summoner from afar, who appeared to be meditating between the shadows of the trees. The archmage turned to me and explained, This one is dreaming of serenity, when the irony is, he is already surrounded by it. He asked me why I thought that was, in a way that would suggest he already knew the answer and was testing me. He was surprisingly transparent in his motives for a leader. I thought about my aunt's for a moment, peering through the bushes to examine the boy myself. He sat cross-legged in a patch of ankle-high grass, which was a rare sight in the forest, strangely enough. He was a handsome young man, eighteen perhaps. He had stylish waves of green hair like a woodland fairy of children's tales. He wore ceremonial robes of mauve, decorated with gold ribbon. A strange choice for meditation, if you ask me. But what struck me most was his stance, particularly the way in which his hands were placed. He held them peculiarly at his side, spread like wings, his hands placed flat on the ground like he was gently keeping something from pushing upwards from below them. When a warrior finds himself surrounded by bloodshed, he often needs to fill it further with more of the same, was my answer to the Archmage's question, though I feared the inadequacy of it before it was even delivered. I was not surprised that for better or for worse, he did not respond. 
He placed his hands in the pockets of his leather overcoat and strolled towards the entrance of the testing grounds. A glimmer of yellow dragonflies swarmed to charm his retreat. I remember even then admiring the way he strolled nonchalantly away from me, his posture accentuated by the streetlight spotlight of a dozen dragonflies. When I caught up with him, he threw a kind of reintroducing smirk at me that was faintly reassuring. Our floating torches had left us now, but the gleaming of the crystalline blue flowers around us made me feel at ease. He lowered his smile, and with a hint of disappointment and concern, addressed me. You took a great risk on the mage. Had you failed to connect, he would have surely overcome you. It was only right. It was silly of me to risk my life on a chance to show off. But I was young and feeling mischievous, just like the now decapitated mage. Go with the flow, I say. He wouldn't have overcome me, I assure you, I chanced at him, feeling a little more comfortable in his presence and refusing to be intimidated by his lofty standing. After all, you would have come to my rescue, right? I followed with a smirk. That was it, I thought. I was really pushing my luck with the attitude now, and hoped for the best. A quick verbal slap on the wrist would have cut it. I felt myself going red with embarrassment. But instead of scolding me for my surprisingly flirtatious behaviour, he just looked at me, smiled and laughed quietly to himself. I followed suit with a tiny giggling a second later, mostly in relief. I was starting to like this archmage chap. I had never been gifted the authority to enter what high mages had often called Ground Zero, where it is said that Merlin and his generals specifically enacted their sacrificial ritual. The vast open space hidden within the overgrowth was only accessible to those members of the circle who could perform the ancient spells to unlock the invisible, but frighteningly painful to touch, barrier. The archmage gave the sealed gate, framed by vibrant chains of ivy, a quick once-over, perhaps to check that all was right with the world before turning his head to address me. No peeking, and cover your ears. Oh, yes, sir, I thought to myself, a little sarcastically, perhaps. Blimey, I get so cheeky when I've just killed something. So I did as I was told, avoiding the archmage's secret from being seen by myself, at least. It didn't last as long as I thought it would, because he tapped me on the shoulder only ten or so seconds later, spooking me a little. Perhaps it was just open sesame or something. Magicians can be a little cliched at times. We really can't help it. Another thing I couldn't help was my failing to contain my admiration for the inner sanctum known as Ground Zero. It was like a natural coliseum carved from love and colour. The peace was broken only by the buzzing of hundreds more dragonflies of multiple shades. They swarmed in throes of dancing flight, like clouds of stars moved by the wind. They were so beautiful that I almost cried. The archmage was visibly pleased too. I think he'd had his concerns that the space was not being kept in pristine shape. Concerns that faded away quite quickly. I was pleased that he was obviously letting me breathe our surroundings in a little. After all, unless I became a member of his exclusive little circle, then for better or worse, I would never be visiting this place again. I could hear the invisible choir at last. 
I had never before and have not since heard any sound as sacred as the hypnotic hums of those distant spectres. Distant in dimensions, but close in spirit, they were all around us now in the very air we breathed. I closed my eyes and pictured their melodies as gaseous nebulae, illuminating a resonance with the soothing gospel. The trees that were enclosed in this place were our audience. The cherry blossoms and the red Sierra Nevadas closed in on the circle from the outside, leaning in to catch a rare show for their entertainment. What the hell were Sierra Nevadas doing here? The cute little critters that inhabited the forest were also having a little peek too, I wagered. I truly felt as though I was a character inside a fairy tale. It looked just like it should have, like it was painted by the most colourful of ancient magic. Just as I was starting to feel quite at one with the serenity of it all, the archmage, who had traversed the far end of the circle opposite me, spoke. His back was turned to me and his sword was drawn. We have ourselves a little predicament, it seems. Your performances today with both the fangs and the old man have thrown me into a dilemma of sorts. He made a complete 180, slowly, and looked sharply into my eyes from afar. I was, for the first time, unnerved by his presence. As reluctant as I am to admit it, I possess neither the power nor the will to call forth such a beast as to test the strength and cunning I have seen from you today. I paid attention to his troublesome lament. He was not proud of his inability to test me, I could tell, but he had a plan B up his sleeve. Of that I was certain. You see, Alwyn, I have not been fully introduced to that which you are capable of. That matters not, though, for the little you have shown me has, for the lack of a more poetic substitute, shocked me. You may not know this, Alwyn, but you are gifted beyond your years mightier than we gave you credit for. There is no beast, I fear, even summoned by myself, that can test you to your limits. For that is my task here today. Alwyn, my task is to essentially try to kill you. Yours is to not be killed. As with what happened with a mage outside the forest, all the lights in the whole world seemed to dim at once. It was as though I possessed the ability to see foreboding cascading down all around me through my naked eyes. In reality, though, it was my body readying itself for almost certain peril, focusing forward, blocking out the unnecessary from my peripheral vision. And indeed, if his reputation was anything to go by, then it was to be peril the likes of which I would never have faced before. He eyed the blade of his sword up and down, then returned his focus to me. With careful deliberation preceding him, he said, So, with that in mind, I think I have found a suitable replacement for your ascension to grace. I knew his words before they even left his lips, and they terrified me like none had ever terrified me before. He parted his arms. His grandfather's murasame spreading out like a single wing of the mighty harpy. I drew my blade in anticipation. 
I began to really sweat for what felt like the first time in my life, and the anticipation would have killed me if I'd have been even a shred weaker than I was. I crouched in battle stance, and awaited the confirmation from the man himself. And after what seemed like the slowest lifetime known to man, he announced himself to me. So you see, you leave me no choice, Alwyn Melindril. Here I am. Your test awaits thee. With those words, my battle against the Archmage of Jaram began. Lunging towards me like an arrow shot from a bow, murderous intent in his eyes, he launched a hellacious flurry of swordsmanship that hoped to cut me down with ease. The Colosseum vanished from around me and all that I could see or hope to focus on were the ravenous foray of lashes from the Archmage's legendary steel. Lashes which I held back only by the strength of my grip and the resolve of my steel. All the while, he was levitating above me, thus gifting him the early advantage of height. I felt nothing but sheer adrenaline. The world around me was a pre-creation chaos that amounted to nothing. It mattered not to me and no longer fathomed into the equation. Short glimpses of other details came to me in flashes whilst I instinctively positioned my blade to block his offence. I couldn't help but notice that perhaps out of arrogance, the Archmage fought with his left hand folded behind his back while he struck with his right. This I later put down to balance and weight distribution, as the blade was thought to be much heavier than its thin curvature suggested. It nevertheless annoyed me somewhat. His stance seemed way too cocksure for a man who was thought to be master in battle tactics and swordplay. My defences were holding together. I mostly held my ground, but staggered to and fro from time to time. But I seemed to have gotten into the steady pace for parrying his strikes. A fact that seemed to itch the Archmage greatly. I could not help but catch sight of a change in the sterile look he'd been given me up until now. He was all too quickly becoming agitated by my persistence. This was the sign that he would change up his attack before long. Of course, these things are hard to pin down to exact moments, so I was surprised to feel the buckshot thud of his boots in unison. Kick against my chest plate as he used it as a launch pad with which to somersault himself away from me. I fell to the ground and scrambled to adjust back to defend myself as soon as possible. He returned his sword to its scabbard, positioning his hands to his side, his palms open and facing me, ready to do battle the way we were meant to, with magic. When I hoisted myself back to a crouching stance, I saw the circle that we inhabited had both grown in size and blossomed in colour. I thought to myself that only the coming onslaught of immeasurable magic could have such an adverse effect on the very fabric of nature around it. A very real display of all the colours of the rainbow. The very air around me breathing in and out. We were in the very lungs of hell, and no beauty was to be found here now. Exhaling flames first, he shot forward the searing breath of fire that rolled toward me like a tidal wave of red and amber. I rushed to form a barrier around me, but failing that, I dived to my left and rolled to avoid the barrage. 
I was not too joyful to see that it continued to pursue me from where they emanated. They seemed like random bursts, and not very well guided, as they should have reached me by now, and tested my guard to full extent. It was with this that I saw his true intentions. They were but a decoy, launched to distract me from the deadlier magic soon to come from behind them. I raised my shield with all the will I could muster as a lancet of lightning bolted viciously from behind the amber haze. Even with all my power, I was still jolted back a considerable distance, and I struggled to stay on my feet for as long as this merciless volley of magic continued. Even in this precarious state, my defences refused to fall, and as tempting as it might have been to at once go on the offence, tired of holding back to one onslaught after the other, I resolved to stay my course and bide my time. My window would reveal itself eventually. All I required was will and the patience to see it through. If I even made it that far. been a thousand years since the Celestial War, and the great races were rendered extinct. A thousand years since the establishment of the Decladine Empire, and peace came over Pylos. But an ancient secret that promises of untold power has broken the Alliance and threatens to destroy the realm. Join our heroes, Tash. Grab Daryl. Get out! I will follow you! Go! Silverpaw. You'll pay for this, Sylvia. Crag. Someone is looking for you. The name Tash anything to you. And Bagger. Let's get dangerous. As they uncover dangerous secrets, ancient cities, and race against time, and the Empire itself to save Pylos. Download The Stranger Lands now, before it's too late. Battle strategies can change within an instant. And although mine had held up so far, I could feel the strain of the Archmage's offence wearing me down. To buy myself some time, and to hopefully keep him distracted, until I caught my breath back at least, I turned to a contingency plan that had served me well in days past. Being that I am a summoner, I felt it appropriate at last to put my skills at work. I couldn't really afford the time to call forth a beast that would truly sway this battle for me, for in an interim between the start and end of the summoning, the Archmage would no doubt tear me to pieces. An unfortunate irony to a sorceress attaining grace was that they were rarely given the opportunity to actually summon anything worth summoning. Luckily, I needed only a beast of fierce enough temperament to keep the Archmage busy for a few minutes so I could brew myself a strength renewed, and also perhaps a barrage of black magic for my own offensive foray. Pokey, the huntsman's handyman, the cherub-eater of earthquakes with a feather bow in his crown. The wolf of legend who would eat the sun if it were cool enough to bite. He would heed my call for this important task. 
He was a princely beast, and not a slight upon his fur, nor a chip in his claws had come to pass since I last called for him. Thus his princely status stood as unblemished. I called him, and he came. No lengthy ceremonies needed for my trusty pokey. He popped right in from nowhere, sitting obediently at my side and staring up at me with puppy dog eyes. What a cheeky little sod. I allowed myself to think as the archmage paused his second wave preparations to survey the new arrival. What a cheeky little mutt indeed. For behind those pretty little purple eyes and his well-groomed mane, he was a motherfucking killing machine. I set him upon the archmage, took an enormous breath, and clasped my hands in prayer to heal myself of wear and tear. I closed my eyes after seeing Pokey hanging onto Barber's forearm by his own ruthless bite. I could feel the whiteness of prayer flowing through my body. It felt like mint leaves vaporizing through the rivers of my being. I exhaled not a moment later, feeling ready for the second coming of offense from my foe. That was until I opened my eyes to see the damning of my situation. Not a dozen seconds after closing my eyes, I saw the horror of the Archmage's full ability in the sickening image before me. In his left hand, he held the carcass of my beloved Pokey, sodden in his own entrails and empty stared into the throes of death. In his right hand, he held the Murasane, drenched in the blood of his prize, dripping in slow motion. At the head of the triptych, the archmage, victorious and smiling, his godly stance, a cruel picture of power, sent chills down my spine. I had greatly underestimated him, more so than I ever thought. Pokey had been a last resort that had never failed me. But here stood the archmage Barber of Jarum, barely a sweat broken and basking in the glory of an impressive victory. I felt the will to continue wheeze out of me. It felt like I'd been shot straight through the gut. Who was I kidding? I never stood a chance at this king of men. After all, here stood the ruler of the southern realms, the archmage, the very head of my order. What could a lowly apprentice ever dream of achieving against a man of his experience? And how unfair was it that I was put up against him in the first place? Very, I'd say. The Archmage versus a young apprentice. My life on the line. Well, fuck it then, I thought to myself. And if I shall die, then so shall it be. I'd wipe his sickening smile off his face at least, if that's the last thing I'd ever do. My sorrow, coupled with his cruelty, had enraged me to where I was now burning with the fires of Mount Jarum itself. It was my fuel, and with it I would crush him. My peripheral view was no longer as acute as it had been before. I had become engulfed in the flames of my despair, surrounded by the illusion of the forest burning around me. And in the centre, my target standing guard as I sprinted like a rabid dog towards him. My fury was unbound. I hacked at the archmaid with the unrestraint of a wild animal. I threw all my weight into every hit, and the archmaid desperately met my every blow with his own. Steel on steel, 
a burst of sparks from their every meeting. We danced in a semblance of a perfect storm, like marionettes swaying in the winds at the end of the world. In my aggression, I was blind to any trick that he would throw at me, and I was as arrogant to assume that he would be too busy to try something as scheming as his next move. I saw it coming way too late, and if I'd have had a leg to stand on afterward, I would have kicked myself with it. I did not notice, of all the things, that the Archmage was now using both hands to hold his sword. By the time I had noticed, he had just begun to let go of the sword with his right hand, throwing all the weight of his left into an upward swipe as my arms were raised above my head in defence. He aimed his right hand at my chest and blast a ball of burning electricity at my unguarded frame. I was sent hurling backwards, scalded and maimed. My sword was thrown across the wayside, where I could never reach it in time. He then launched himself at my downtrodden frame, sword pointed down, murder in his eyes. As the blade came down to meet me in slow motion, I did not think at all of my past experiences, nor did I lament at the impending death that now seemed certain. I refused to give up that easily even if the odds were highly stacked against me. Instead, I raised my hands and grabbed his sword by the blade before it reached me. My mithril gloves cut off at the knuckles, saving my hands from severe injury. But in the process, the skin of my exposed fingers were basically sliced to shreds. The pain was like a hundred third-degree burns all over my fingers. I winced and fought through it to use the Archmage's downward momentum to kick him over me rolling him behind my head into the floor. I rolled forward to retrieve my blade, grabbing it as I once again regained my crouching stance. I tried so hard not to cry out in agony as I wrapped my fingers around the hilt, but it was useless. The pain was out of this world. I switched the blade to a single hand, my right, as I clutched my abdomen with my left. The Archmage's magic bolt had been so devastating that it felt as though my insides were about to spill out from the wound it had left. I could barely hold myself up, let alone stand. It took him a second or two longer than it should have to get back to his feet. He'd vanquished a measure too much of his strength to launch his final blows against me, and it seemed that my desperate counter had all but drained him of his energy. Alas, offensive fighters seldom stand the test of time, and it was this flaw that became the Archmage's Achilles' heel. I could see him tiring now. All the stamina of will and all the stomach in the world would fail to hide that fact from me. And in this seemingly serene moment, after a maelstorm of blood and sweat that is the heat of battle, the eye of the storm perhaps, I now saw my window opening. My imaginary fires of the forest had ceased, and only the twilight of finality, patient and still, crept over the empty gladiatorium of trees and earth. The cream-coloured candles of the air, our friends the dragonflies, had returned. Or at least, that's what I thought they were at first. Cream was not the colour of the glowing insects. Even in this forest, could it be? I thought to myself. Were these spectres of glowing light really the Fey Foken? I did shed a tear or two this time, as I thought that I would die without ever laying eyes upon them. 
Even the Archmage spared himself a moment to appreciate the namesakes of the forest. And yes, they really did look like little stars sitting amongst the heavens. They were enchanting. It seems that our forefathers have come to catch the ending of this tale, said the Archmage, whilst a halcyon orb of light, one of his apparent forefathers landed in his open palm as he smiled sincerely. So the Archmage shared my theory about the origins of the Fey Folk, it seemed. Shall we give them the closure they so desperately desire, Alwyn of Melindril? He asked with great fatigue about him, panting slowly. Breathing heavily and deep, the Archmage and I stared each other down. I rose to my feet in answer to his question. I lifted my sword to stance as he did the same. Once more with feel, once more unto the breach. We engaged each other one last time, with the last of our strength diminishing before our very eyes. We slowly launched our swords at one another, like old men fighting with twigs and branches. But our strikes would be just fierce enough to mortally wound the other as long as they made the necessary contact. The stillness of the air made for such a perfect backdrop to our final skirmish. It was like the strength of the air also had been diminished. We were all at one with each other, but it did not last long. With perhaps a second wind behind him, the Archmage's blows became too overwhelming for me to even stand. I felt whatever scaffold of defense that was keeping me on my feet fall completely apart and was beaten to the floor once again. The pendulum had swung in his favour, but I continued to parry his attacks away from me. My hands were pouring with crimson, and my body was aching from the emptiness of my depleted energy. The image before me of his sword constantly striking my own were like small eruptions of lightning. I cried in fear. It truly felt like the end of the world. I had but one more move, one last, solitary burst of strength left in me. And at that moment, when I saw how badly the cards were stacked against me, I saw a way to beat him. I had won this battle. He did not know it yet, but I did. And as I lay flat on my back, swinging my blade ceaselessly with the last of my strength, burning with all the fires of passion and fear, I knew that I had bested him. In what would appear to be a careless lapse to the Archmage, I let him swipe my sword out of my hands, and in a move that has gone down in legend since, I threw his own dirty little trick right back at him. As he made for his decisive cut, the one that would confirm his intention to kill me, I raised my arms to meet him, and cast a piercing shard of ice straight through his chest, and threw him from his feet to his downfall. The archmage lay motionless, lung-shot and undone. I needed not to see it for myself. I had beaten him completely. I had attained my grace. As I clawed my way to my feet, after crawling to my blade for what seemed like an eternity, I felt the silence of the battle's end from all around the forest. I was utterly in ruin my abdominal wound pouring with blood, and my hands, well, they felt like they would never heal. 
I dragged my lumbering frame, haggard and pitiful, to where the archmage lay, scraping my trusted steel behind me through the dirt. He was still alive, at least, but he did not look like he would see another day. In the end, it was either him or me. I'd have no regrets. A spark of life lay in his eyes, and I was sure that even in such a wasted state, he would jump up at any minute and attempt to strike me down. It was unlikely, the rational portion of my mind told me, but I'd be sure to take precautions nevertheless. He tilted his head up to me and met me with a satisfied smile. I met him with my blade, the tip now resting at his throat. Well, go on. Take thy kingdom from me. After all, how many get to say they were gifted such an opportunity to kill the Archmage of Darum? Shut up. Just shut up, okay? No more words from you. It's not my duty to slay the leader of my order. Besides, I think I've proved my worth already. Don't you? He continued to cough up blood. He was starting to turn pale. And if he went on wasting his breath on words, he would bleed out completely. The last thing I wanted was a dead archmage to have to answer for. I'd be burnt at the stake for sure. He still had something to get off his chest, though, and despite my warning, he said it regardless. Neither is it my duty to kill you now. You have indeed proved your worth to me, sorceress Owen. The title is now yours. He began to fade away. I sheathed my sword and knelt beside him. I began the attempt to save his life by melting the ice shard lodged in his chest and through his lung. His last words before he lost consciousness were his first command to me as his loyal servant. Leave me here. I will recover eventually. Don't worry. Find yourself an inn for the night. In Mistletoe, perhaps. I will meet you there when I am in more suitable a shape to move. Go now. You have earned your rest. I feared that his recovery would never happen. And as he closed his eyes, I made the easy decision to disobey his orders. I dared not move him from where he lay. The ice shard, against my greater efforts, remained inside him. Any aggravated movement would surely tear his lungs to shreds. I prepared myself for the long haul. The shard was going nowhere for a while, so I did what I could for the exit wound and rested myself against a lofty sierra at the edge of the circle. As I began to fade from sheer depletion, and with blissful rest creeping toward me. I thought I spied the fey folk watching from the slumber of night, beyond the tree line at the other side. I fancied that they had never been gifted a showdown like the one they'd just witnessed. I fancied that they'd never see a showdown like that again. movies, TV, comic books, and anime, but hate those few toxic fans out there that are negative for the sake of being negative? Do you want honest reviews from passionate fans? Well, look no further than the Geek Goodness Podcast Network. 
New to the scene, we're adding content to suit everyone's taste and reviews in a way that shows we're the kind of fans who can appreciate what works and constructively criticize what doesn't. So if that sounds like something you can sink your teeth into, then come on down, put on some headphones, and find us wherever good podcasts are distributed. Geek Goodness Podcast Network, where our brand of geek is non-toxic. When I opened my eyes, I was horrified to see the daylight peering in through the leafy meshes of tall trees. Only here in the very middle of the forest was it possible to see the daylight, for the opening to the skyline lay here solely, in the cleft that Ground Zero allowed. I was stupid to allow myself an entire night's sleep, given the state I had left the Archmage in. I remember thinking to myself how I had bested him, and if I would have fallen for the trap that I had sprung on him. It seemed a little unusual for a man of such incredible powers to give his opponent such a great window, to cast a devastating spell that would certainly spell the end of the battle. Only at this moment did I realise that the man I was thinking about may not have even survived the night, and when I inched forward, lowering my head to survey the damage, did I see that not only was he still alive, but we were no longer alone. A hooded old man, Stern and bitter-looking, was crouched beside the archmage, attending to his wounds and whispering clandestine nothings into his ear, flanked by two high-ranking guards in crimson battle armour, both of whom were fixed upon my almost motionless and desolate frame. The anonymous pair came marching toward me with their golden pikes pointing at me the whole way, fixing the deadly lancets at my neck. The taller of the nondescript offenders shouted at me my rights. You are to be detained by the circle of high mages on suspicion of high treason and the attempted murder of Archmage Mayor Baba. Your wounds we shall attend to and you shall remain in custody until further notice. He signalled silently to his companion, enough for him to understand that I was in no great state to cause any further harm and that they would need to carry me away to whatever means of transport they possessed. The hooded man, no doubt a member of the circle, looked at me not once. I remember little of the journey back to the city, nor do I recall my immediate incarceration. The first thing I recall quite vividly is waking up in my cell a day later. My body felt like the extinguished flame of a well-spent campfire, the wood and tinder withered and black. There was neither a bone nor a muscle in my body that didn't feel either broken or used up. Victory had preceded me, and my heart felt it true. But my body reeked of defeat, and it had soured my victory completely. I wondered why the Archmage had not come to free me. The thought occurred to me that he might actually have died from his wounds. If that were the case, then I would surely be put to death not long from now. I was resting my wounds only to be killed anyway. Then I remembered the somewhat restricted state of affairs that bound the Archmage from simply freeing me. Regardless to his illustrious title of leader of Jarum, he was still very much the behest of the Senate. It could not roll forward with drastic actions until these particular few had been given their say on the matter. This restriction would definitely apply to an apprentice sorceress accused of the attempted murder of Jarum's numero uno. The Archmage would disband the Senate a number of years down the line, renaming the city the Empire of Jarum, thus effectively triggering a sort of benign dictatorship for himself in the process. That, however, is a story for another time. 
I was more inclined to believe that I would be freed, if the Archmage had not died in the night, that is. For now, though, there was nothing I could do. Not from inside my cell. Not in this state. Instead, I vowed to rest and let my wounds heal. The doctors of Jarm had done a fine job getting me this far. It's funny, really, how little I remember of my first two days in custody. Yet I vividly recalled the dream I had on the second of the two. I was a little girl again, just a tiny elfling princess. Snug and tucked into bed, the forests of Merindril were my domain. A young human boy had crept into my window, having snuck right past the guards outside. I was surprised that he had even got as far as the gatehouse at the ground level of the forests. He wore a silver drape of chainmail over a white silk shirt that reflected what moonlight we could see through the trees. Below his neck hung a cross, a religious symbol of northern origin, silver and modest in design. It was his eyes that were the most alarming to me, for there existed no such trace of them upon his face, not so much as a hint of empty sockets where eyes may have once belonged. It made him look unfinished. He knelt beside me, on top of my duvet, and I shirked away from him in caution. Every time I did so, he nuzzled his way closer to me shyly. When he was close enough to do so, he leaned towards me and lay a quiet kiss on my left cheek slowly. I felt a spell of drowsiness spread out from my head outwards like a light and delicate vapour of gentle magic. I have seen you in my dreams. I have been searching for you for so long, whispered the boy excitedly. I could do nothing but continue to rock back and forth, subtly in my newfound sleepiness. It was bliss. I have come here to tell you something. I couldn't figure any other way to reach you, so you must forgive me. What is it? I struggled to murmur to him. I was fading back to reality, giving him very little time to convey his important message. We left important treasures here, many centuries ago. So many centuries ago, in fact, that we lost count. They are only meant for us, but we're so far away now that we may never return to retrieve them. The eyeless boy was clearly becoming distressed, either by the urgency of his message or by my increasing drowsiness. It makes us sad, but you will do more harm than good if you take them for yourself, so you must destroy them completely so they can't destroy you. As I faded back into dreamless sleep, I managed a final question to the boy. Where do I find these treasures? But I never got to hear his answer. I woke up in my subterranean cell in Jaren, many years of man, not many years of elf older. The archmage, dressed in bandages and smiling, stared at me through the iron bars. So I didn't kill you after all, I joked. He laughed and threw his gaze around the dungeon, taking it all in for himself, both the damp and drab of the entire structure. And boy, was it drab. We both seemed to share the same thought when we got in the feel of the place, like the creature from the Black Lagoon had done a shat inside a mountain. It didn't smell like that, though. No. It smelled more like sweat had done a piss inside a dog. Though I doubt that's how he would have worded it. Being so, you know, archmage and all. He confirmed my suspicions that the Senate had made things difficult regarding my release, 
but assured me that we would never make it to trial. The way with which he used the word we made me feel at ease. It suggested to me that he was trying very hard to get me out of here, even if it meant admitting to defeat by the hands of an apprentice. Fully fledged now, of course. We were in this together. We talked long into the silence of the night. Amazing how two people almost killing each other can bring them so close together. Things remained this way for the better part of an entire week. We began to share our secrets with one another by candlelight, making a welcome change every night to the stench and degradation of my unfortunate surroundings. I'd gladly have conceded at the time to even looking forward to the Archmage's nightly visits. We fell in love here. There's no doubt in my mind. Not now, and neither was there back then. It's funny the way things turn out. On our first day, we almost killed each other. Shortly after, we fell in love. And now? Now things seem to have come full circle. I never thought about the advantages of being with the Archmage. I'm all too aware of my position as High Sorceress and how our relationship undoubtedly influenced that. But it was never my goal. For starters, we kept our affair a secret for its entirety. We were not exactly a team who worked in tandem or a two-person power trip either. Naturally, we kept our relationship and our social position separate, because they really were two distinct entities. But there were times when the two would spill into one another. That much is obvious. But one time in particular stands out as the moment that the fulcrum of our romantic association began to crumble under its own weight. That moment. The beginning of the end. And the catalyst for the war between us both was when the Archmage first spoke to me of the Vector of Plagues. On that night, I felt us both begin to fall apart. A small but noticeable tear had begun to form between us, and in the coming years it would only grow. Between both Barber's greed and my morality, we begun to resemble something closer to rivals, and much later, enemies. Earlier, I covered the nature of the sibling orbs, also known as the Vector of Plagues and the Silhouette of Sophia, and my knowledge of them. How I kept said knowledge a secret, and how they'd later play a huge role in both my life and the lives of all who now live in this age. The Archmage's knowledge was less than mine when it came to these particular weapons. In fact, Barber's knowledge of the orbs did not include the existence of the Silhouette at all. No. From whatever source the Archmage first came to know the Vector of Plagues lay no mention of its sister, the equally as important device. In his tirade of lust for power, the likes of which I have never heard him speak before, I came to fear that my beloved Barber had fallen victim to a temporary sort of madness befitting of ancient kings and warlords. The only part of my theory that was not true was the part about it being temporary. The war with the Northern Realm had grown uncharacteristically violent at the time, worse than in any state the Circle had predicted it to be. Barber had been under a terrifying amount of pressure to deliver a lasting peace to our nation, whether through negotiation or, if needed, through devastation. His attempts at a peaceful solution were met with pitiful failure, 
It was around this time that he discovered the whereabouts of the ultimate weapon that he thought would secure him complete victory over the North, the Vector of Plagues. In his haste to secure it, lest watchful eyes caught glimmer of it first, he willingly neglected his wartime responsibilities and gambled all his chips on the single outcome offered to him by the Vector. Thousands died in merely days. Thousands turned into tens of thousands in just a month of brutal conflict on both sides. From the day the Archmage became acquainted with the Vector, he was utterly engulfed by its power. He had become the willing slave to a mindless mechanism. And because of that, our empire fell into dismay. Tonight I sit amongst troubling times. The air may be still, but I fear that it is only the calm before the storm. I still remember the night that this was all set into motion, the night of Barbar's speech to the Circle, when he first delivered his diabolical scheme to the heads of power of Jarum. I was present at this meeting, and forlorn throughout. I realised that I had lost the man I loved to greed. I confronted my love one last time on the dire consequences of his desire to use his vector of plagues to decimate the North knowing full well that he was ignorant to the almost certain annihilation of the entire world promised by said actions. When the truth had finally reached me, that he was far beyond redemption, I headed to the foot of the mountain of Jarum, to the old town, where my allies lay in the ever-present shadows, for what was now to be a damning verdict on our present state of affairs. I remember clearly the sun rising from over the old town, as I descended the countless steps to the orange glowing city below. I remembered the intense shroud of mourning clinging to my body, like the burden of a cross weighing me down. It was not just the pain of all that had come before disappearing before my very eyes, but the dread of what was to come next that forced me to despair. I had been given no other choice. The Archmage had crossed into a realm of insanity that threatened to end the lives of all I held dear to me. The sincere and endearing peoples of Jaren, and the dregs of what remained of my home, Merendril. I was not naive in my thinking either. I was well aware that a target would soon appear on my head now that I had dared to defy the Empire's and the Inner Circle's schemes. With this clarity in mind, I planned my descent to the Sorcerer's Sanctum carefully with due care as to assure I would not be followed by the Archmage's sycophants and military police. I had a body tubble intended for this very purpose. My sister Elenya, a human girl, an orphan who'd been caught sneaking at the edges of Merendril's ancient forest many moons ago. They caught her in the daytime of early spring, foraging for berries, and I pleaded with my father to have mercy on the intruder. For an outsider, trespass upon our borders meant death, or imprisonment for minors. Not only did my father's weakness for my pleas grant Elenya her freedom, but I also pushed successfully to have him adopt her as my sister. Despite the length of human lives being quarter of that of Elvish, my sister, when disguised as I, made for a convincing double of me. In Elvish years, I was only 19, but by human reckonings, both myself and Elenya were over 40 years old. Amazing, really. We couldn't tell whether I looked much older than my 19 elven years suggested, or if Elenya looked much younger than her human 40. Either way, with a little hocus-pocus, 
or makeup if you'd prefer. We were quite the pair. The plan was remarkably simple. I would return to my modest abode, situated at the foot of Jaram's temple, approach and switch places with my sister. She would exit my cottage, having appeared to freshen up a bit and deposit whatever loose items she needed to deposit, and walk to her own home, thus leading whomever it may be following me on a short and fruitless chase across the city. I, on the other hand, would sneak through the back door, into the alleys of Jaram, and make haste to the sorceress's temple east of the city, where my comrades and conspirators awaited news of Archmage Barber's ghastly schemes. There was very little time to catch up. It illed me greatly that myself and my sister were restricted to only meeting under these short circumstances. I embraced Elenia with all the warmth I could hope to muster, for I loved her deeper than I could ever say. We held each other in the soft assurance that only two sisters would understand. We said our goodbyes for now, and she departed for her home in silhouette, with the hopes that my pursuers would take the bait and follow. My perchance for charitable acts of kindness did not end with adopting Elenia as my sister. Over the years I had formed an unbreakable bond with the people of Jarum, spending the majority of my years forever in their presence. They had my ear, as it were, and I would often do anything within my power to assist them in any way I could. I didn't see them as my flock, rather my extended family, and in some cases, my friends. I'd like to think that when all my long years on this earth are concluded, that I did my piece to make this city a better place to live in for all who had so previously struggled, with both hardships and misfortune dragging them down. These charitable deeds had done more than provide a better life for those concerned, though. I, too, had benefited greatly, garnering a following of sorcerers and sorceresses alike, all of whom had been inspired by my work to answer the call of duty for their city and take up the great task of sorcery for themselves. We became a close-knit band of brothers and sisters, whose duty was and remains the protection of Jarum and her neighbours. All throughout the war with the North, we strove, sometimes at great cost, to dispel what negative effects befell those who were on either side of conflict, whether it be through medicine or simple diplomacy. Our job was to bring peace to a war-torn world. But I sit here now in knowing that we have failed that mission, for war is the nature of the world we find ourselves in now. On that particular morning, however, when I hastily made my approach to our meeting place, even with the promise of more death ahead of us. I had plans to halt it in its tracks. The power-hungry Mayor Barber, twisted by the vector, fixated upon the prize of absolute power, would not listen to rhyme nor reason, even from his most beloved. He would, however, listen to threats. We will have open war soon. Of that I have no doubt. The Archmage's twisted campaign has at last reached a point where even I cannot dissuade him. With my words came an audible shrinkage of morale from every mouth of man and woman around me. I recall the previous three nights' highlights to my own circle, as the atmosphere in the candlelit temple turned to that of overwhelming sorrow, for the burden of duty and the undesired weights of open war were creeping upon us all and some of us would surely perish in the coming months.
a vacuum sounded throughout the hallway. The sound of all the breath leaving the lungs of my colleagues in complete surprise. I thought that we'd been discovered, that our time was up. But as I turned to face the entrance to our lair, a shadow of a weathered soldier staggered into the fray. My most trusted and mysterious ally, Amon, had returned from the most important mission that I had ever sent any man or elf on. From around his neck, a thick rope was tied. The skin around it blistered and ruined from dragging a terrifying weight behind him. I already knew what was inside the bag at the end of the rope. But when he raised his arms, a vacant stare of an emotionless cell sword staring back at me, to reveal that his hands had been burnt off to the wrist. It was confirmed. I approached the bag, placing my hand on Amon's shoulder in reassurance, and kneeling, unthreaded the string around the opening to unravel the contents. You did well, Amon. Better than anyone could have dreamed. I muttered as I clasped my hands around the glistening orb. The gasps of men and women around me were both of delight and fear. The room turned violet in its shade as I held the silhouette of Sophia aloft for all to see. <laughs>